I'm Karen Lewis, and welcome to Recovery Bites, a show that gets real about recovery, where we welcome voices in the field and voices of experience. Join me for candid interviews with experts in eating disorder and mental health recovery. Listeners can look forward to new perspectives, meaningful conversations, diverse connection, and compelling personal narratives that make a powerful difference in how we live. Episodes focus on life beyond recovery, the good and the not so good, the successes and the challenges, and the authentic accounts of recovered lives. Not their whole story, just bites. All right, everyone, here we go. My guest for today is Jules Zenikis, and wait till you hear what she talks about. She's a recovery coach who works mostly with teens and adolescents, and she does an incredible job getting them to find what they truly value in life and seeing if they're living in alignment with their values, which never happens in an eating disorder. Jules talks about her own experience with her eating disorder, and she even talks about her experience with psychedelics that really helped her move through a lot of the emotional work that was necessary after she healed behaviorally. So let's just jump right in. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Recovery Bites. I'm really excited to introduce you all to my guest today, Jules Zenikis. Jules, welcome to the show. Hi, Karen. Thank you. I'm so excited and honored to be here today. I'm thrilled to have you. You've got a lot to talk about. So Jules, can you tell the listeners a little bit about what you do? And then we're going to go into your narrative and how you got to where you're at with what you're working with. Wow, that was a mouthful, wasn't it, everyone? (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. So I work as a transformational recovery coach as part of a coaching company called Being True to You. And transformational recovery coaching is, it's really an umbrella term for what we do, which means we help people through any state of suffering, use their suffering as a launching pad for personal growth and cultivation and evolution, and really find the meaning in the suffering. So uh, I have the distinct honor and privilege of working mostly with teenage girls and young adults struggling with things like depression, anxiety, suicidality, self-harm, substance use, eating disorders, of course. That's really my bread and butter and my main area of expertise and what I love to dive into. And all of these things were really intricate pieces of my own story and my own past. So um, I just am blessed every single day to do the work that I do and and help serve these young, beautiful souls. Jules, I love the concept of using your suffering as a launching pad, because the reality is, is if we look into our suffering as opposed to away, when we when we use eating disorder behaviors, we're looking away from our suffering. We're pretending it's not there, so we can't move through it. If we look at it and say, what do I need to do from here? And when I say 
why is it here? I don't mean in the sense of like, well, I must have deserved this. So, but why is this here? How do I move through it? That's, that's healing. Can you share a little bit about your story? Yeah, I would love to. So I struggled with anorexia nervosa for about 10 years. It started in seventh grade for me. And I remember it, it was kind of a weird start into an eating disorder. I guess they're all unusual and uh, special and colorful in their own ways. But um, I had swine flu. I got really sick from swine flu and it was right at the beginning of the school year. And I lost like 10 pounds in a week um, because I was really sick. I couldn't eat anything. Then I come back to school and everyone says, wow, you look so great. And that was the beginning of the end for me. (laughs) And it really coupled this idea with my, my worth was attributed to my body and what I looked like and that skinnier was better. And I got attention that I had never gotten before in my life. And it was different. I never felt that way. I felt beautiful for the first time. And, you know, I, when I was eight years old, I remember that was the first time that I really hated myself. I I hated my body and I, I didn't, I didn't want to live as an eight-year-old, you know, that's so sad. And I put my hands to my chest for the little girl that I was at that time. Uh, and I just give her so much compassion now because it, it was really hard to feel that way. So that's where it really started for me. And then the swine flu, so I lost weight. So then I started after that cutting meals every once in a while and and realizing that, oh, if I'm smaller, that's better. And then when I got to high school, that's when things really started to escalate. Uh, I went to, I'm from the East Coast, <laughs> as you are. So that's home for me. I'm really excited to, you know, share that with you. Um, and when I was in high school, I went to a really competitive boarding school. That's great for a lot of people. And it was not at all the right fit for me. So I was pushing myself to fit this mold that wasn't for me. And so, you know, I leaned on my eating disorder as, oh, I can control this. I can control my input. I can eat basically nothing all day, survive on seven or eight cups of coffee, exercise a lot. And and that gives me control. And I'm really good at that because the thing with growing up in a really competitive environment is that you look at everyone you're like wow that person's a rock star at that and that person's really awesome at that and I felt like I was a really smart kid but I felt inadequate compared to everyone else so for me it was like my eating disorder that's what I can be really good at and I threw myself into that completely and it ended up in you know I got sent um, to treatment Initially, I did PHP. I did things a little backwards. So I did PHP first. I The place that I went, they wanted me to go into residential and my parents, uh, I convinced them that I wasn't sick enough for that and I didn't want them and bless their souls. They wanted to listen to me and, and do what I thought was right, which I think is a little interesting, right? Because you know, you want to listen to the experts and what they say is right. And it was my eating disorder voice that was really running the show and fueling that. And I said, no, I can do PHP and I'll follow the same rules at home. And, 
you know, but of course I had all my tricks to not follow those rules at home. Um, so I did PHP and then it wasn't really helpful, um, not at the fault of the program and my own fault because I wasn't ready to get better. And so then six months later, I went into residential, uh, which was more helpful, but it was the same thing. Like I was smart. I knew all the right things to say to get myself out of there as fast as possible. I followed all the rules, checked all the boxes, but my eating disorder voice was still really strong in my head. So <clears throat> then, um, you know, fast forward a couple of years, my real conversion experience, which changed everything for me was when my best friend Gina passed away. And I remember it that day is always going to be cemented in my head. I landed in California to start college and I had a few missed calls from one of mine and Gina's mutual friends. And so I was like, okay, I'll get to the Airbnb. I'll settle down and I'll call her back. So I called her back and she said, are you sitting down? I said, what happened? And she told me that that Gina had passed away. She had some health complications leading up to that. And she passed away in her sleep. And that just turned my whole world upside down right there. Um, I was 18 years old. I had just gone to California. It was a really hard road for me to get to college uh, because of my mental health and everything that I'd been through. And I worked really hard for this. So it was a very proud moment for my parents and I. And then to have this wrench thrown in, it, it was really difficult. Um, but through that, you know, the six months after her passing, my eating disorder got pretty bad again. That same mechanism of control came in, wanting to control that, wanting to control starting school. And after about six months, I had a really hard, honest conversation with myself one day where I said, I can continue down this road and willfully kill myself, whether I do that in, intentionally, or I do it through partying and drugs and restricting and all this stuff, or I can make a vow to myself and to Gina right now that I'm going to turn my life around and not let her death be in vain and really live my life for her, the life that she can't live and bring that same love and verve for life that that she has and carry that forward with me each and every day and that was really my turning point and you know talking about the transformational recovery that was me using that moment of deep profound suffering to really make the most out of it and you know there's not a day that goes by where I don't think about her and integrate her into my life in really meaningful ways she she loved life she was always helping others and serving and so you know I think about how can I be of service and and if this happens god forbid to be my last day did I live today knowing that I can be okay with that. You know, did I live compassionately? Did I live truthfully? Did I tell the people closest to me that I love them and I'm grateful for them? Did I spread kindness? So I took some zigzags in there, but that's a little bit of my story. So first of all, the first thing I want to say is I'm really sorry about your friend. That's, that's devastating. And you were young and it's, you were at, at such a critical point in your life. And I'm so sorry for Gina's family. That's like the first thing that I, I want to say. The second thing is 
This is one of the reasons. Now, granted, it's really extreme to lose somebody at a young age to passing away. But the reality is, is college is a complicated time. Can't tell you how many parents have said to me, my son or daughter, whether they are begging me to let them go to school and they're still in their eating disorder. And I say to them, they're not ready. You are throwing them in, so to speak. We don't know what new challenges are going to come their way. And there's going to be a lot. And there's going to be a lot of new challenges and a lot of new exciting things. And if they're still in their eating disorder, I can guarantee you new challenges where they couldn't navigate through the the, the challenges of today at new ones, it's going to bring the eating disorder back. And it sounds like that's what happened, that your eating disorder picked up after the loss of your friend. I also want to say that it is really incredible that you had the insight to say to self, what do I want to do with this? This is where I'm at in life. I was in a very, very serious accident like 30 years ago, something like that. And everybody was saying things to me like, like, and this is terrible, but some people would say things to me like, well, maybe you were going down a wrong path. And mm. one day somebody came over to visit me and they said, I am so sorry this happened. What are you going to do with it? Meaning it wasn't your fault. Meaning we can't deny that you did not just have a life altering scenario. And what are you going to do with it? It actually gave me control back of my life and I did not go back into my eating disorder. So it was less than 30 years ago. But but I feel like that's what you did. Do you remember the first step that you took in the zigzag road? <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's a good question. And for me, I think a big part of it is finding that purpose and that meaning. And also when these really challenging, life-altering things happen, allowing yourself to process that and, and grieve that. And I think a lot of times our lives are so busy in this modern world, really, really busy. And there's always things to do. And I've seen it happen with people and I've had this happen to myself in other ways where we don't allow ourselves the time and space to really process heavy emotional things. And so we stuff it down, we stuff it down, and then down the road, it comes up larger and, and more in our face until we can't stuff it down anymore and then we have to deal with it. So I think it was funny, actually. So one of the first things I did was I talked with a counselor, um, a grief counselor at school, because I had also always had a pretty robust treatment team, you know, in, in the four or five years leading up to this. Then I moved across the country. And I was like, oh, where are my people? You know, I still have them on the phone and text, but it's it's not the same as being in person with someone. So I went to the counseling center and met with a grief counselor there. She was incredible. And what was really funny is that our first two sessions, maybe we talked about Gina and her death and, and me 
transitioning into school and what that was feeling like. And at some point in the second session, my eating disorder came up and I was like, yeah, but that's in the past. I'm beyond that. It, it doesn't affect me anymore. Like I want to talk about Gina and I only wanted to talk about her because I didn't want to get honest with myself about what was coming back up really strong. And then we met probably 10 or 12 more times after that. And each time it was like, we only talked about my eating disorder and how it was manifesting and how it started to spiral. And I remember in our first session where the eating disorder came up, she asked me, do you think recovery is possible? And I said, absolutely no way. Everyone that says they're recovered, they are delusional. They're lying to themselves. It's not possible. Maybe it will go into the background for me one day, but I'm never going to be fully free of this eating disorder. And then fast forward to maybe session 10. And she said, do you remember, you know, I'd made a lot of progress in that little bit of time because of who she was and how open she was and what an incredible guide she was for me. And so in about our 10th sessions, she said, do you remember in that first session where we talked about, do you think recovery is possible? And I laughed at my response. I said, yeah, I remember. She said, well, I have something I want to share with you. I am recovered from an eating disorder and I am fully recovered. I live a very happy life. I've birthed a child, which was an incredible experience for my body to go through. And now I get to do what I love, helping other people through their eating disorders. And to me, it was so powerful to sit across from her and know, and I really felt it. Like I knew in my heart and my soul that she really was recovered and she wasn't living in delusion. So she really helped frame that for me, that it is possible. And because she waited to tell me that until I was ready to receive it and she knew that I was ready, it really helped open me up to this possibility of like, wow, it, it is possible. So, you know, for, for me, in that conversion experience, I think one of the most helpful things was immediately going and asking for support, not doing it by myself, knowing that allowing myself the space and the time, whatever I needed to grieve those emotions and really feel them. And I just got so blessed with who I was randomly paired with to to help me process this and yeah she was a pretty instrumental uh player in my recovery I think that there are instrumental people that that come into our lives and I also want to say Jules that if you weren't ready to do your part of the work that therapist would have come and gone in your life and made no impact I want to make sure you take some some ownership of your recovery process. Because like I have said to clients in the past, you can go to, you can go to a treatment center that's gold standard, best in the country, whatever it is. And if you're not in a space, it's not going to be successful. You can go to a terrible treatment center for whatever reason. And if you're 
you're saying to yourself, I'm going to go in and get out of it what I can, what I need, then you will. So it was the combination of this really powerful soul that was sitting across from you and where you were at in the recovery process and your openness and courage. Say a little bit, and I and I know this this might feel like a little bit of a hard turn, but one of the things that you did, and I think it's really incredible, is you use psychedelics for part of your recovery. Can you share a little bit about that? Because I don't think much is known about it. We have had um, Adele LaFrance on, which is a beautiful, amazing soul who works with psychedelics and eating disorders. What was your experience like? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So this came definitely later on in my recovery, uh, in my later years in college, once I was physically weight restored and felt my behaviors were all in check. And what was still really plaguing me was the emotional and mental component of it, of body dysmorphia, of looking around, comparing myself to other people, still having that that drive of, but I can be better. I can be prettier. I can be skinnier. And I think for a lot of people, and I think this is a part of eating disorders that doesn't really enter the conversation as much is that that mental component can last for a really long time. And, but I, I think for some supporters, they check all the boxes of, oh, well, they're physically weight restored. They're, they're not having behaviors. They're great. And because we appear on the outside to be okay, it's no one knows really what the internal experience is like. And and only we know that and what's actually happening. So in my journey, I used psilocybin mushrooms um, specifically to really help with the body dysmorphia part of it and these old narratives of I'm not enough that were really clinging to me. And so I would do solo journeys, which I I don't recommend. I recommend someone does have a a guide or a friend, someone to help them through this experience. I knew that um, I was comfortable with this medicine. I had done it before. I knew the dose that I was going to take. I knew the suppliers. So I, I felt confident in myself, but I do not recommend other people do it this way. Um, so I would do solo journeys and just really find a comfortable place. It was usually in my bedroom and I would have curated music that would really help guide the experience. And, you know, I would have some psilocybin mushrooms and go internal. And so I would put an, an eye shade on the music and really allow myself to intimately explore in a non-judgmental way that internal landscape and what was really happening and you know I'd put my hands to my heart I would put my hands on my belly which at that time was a really triggering thing for me to do and I would sit with that I, I would sit with the discomfort of it and I would pour love into myself and uh, use affirmations and these things that are really helpful tools 
even in a non-psychoactive state um, to access those deeper parts of myself. And it really allowed me to get into a headspace uh, where I was free from all the conditioning and programming and my own self-imposed prison of, you know, I'm not, I'm not enough. I'm, I, I need to be more and achieve more and, and look a certain way. And it would just let all those defenses come down so that I could be with myself at my core and really honor that I am a kind person. I am an intelligent person. I'm a beautiful person. And I need to honor that in myself and I need to love myself. And it was really helpful too in going back into the inner child and doing a lot of that work because a lot of this suffering started when I was really young and I didn't have the languaging and the tools to care for myself. You know, I remember being really, really young and just wanting someone to hold me and care for me and tell me that they they loved me and they wanted me there and that I was um and really honor me as a little kid. And so when we can be older and do that for ourselves and give that younger past self that love and and all those things that we really needed and didn't get. And now that we have the foresight to know how helpful that is, that's, I think, where a lot of healing happens as well. And so with the psilocybin, it was able to just activate these parts of really loving myself and honoring and venerating how I showed up in the world and my kindness and my heart. And without the mask that I put on, without the eating disorder voice, without all these things. And then outside of the journey too, a lot of work happens in the integration afterwards. So especially when I it's usually depending on the medicine that someone uses, but 30 to 90 days after at working with a psychedelic, you have this really beautiful neuroplastic window where your brain is more open to creating these new neural pathways. And the way I like to explain it to my clients is it's like when you clear out the cookies on your browser, you know? So when we, before we clear out the cookies, if we type in F and we go to Facebook a lot, it's going to auto-populate Facebook. Then when we clear out our cookies, when we type F, we can put anything in there that we want because it's all new. So it's similar with the neuroplastic window with psychedelics, where after that experience, it really clears up all the cookies in our brain so that we can create new pathways and pathways of of love and healing and really have a higher likelihood that these new behaviors and thought patterns are going to stick and going to stay. How do you implement this theory, which by the way, it's, it's a beautiful it's a beautiful way of of viewing the human psyche and the soul and whatnot. 
how do you work with it when people are not using psychedelics? Because I do know that you work with young children. And so here you're actually working with the person who in the moment is feeling the insecurity and the, and feeling unloved and feeling all these things. How do you do that? Because I, I I don't know enough about psychedelics to know what the age is that that you, the cutoff that you but I imagine you can't give it to children. So how do you help them? Because I know you love working with teenagers. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what I really love about the position that I'm in and what I can do is, you know, I'm 24 years old. I remember pretty well those teenage years and all the turmoil and everything that I went through. And I think that's my, my superpower in my coaching is that I can relate really well to what they're going through. You know, it's the, the cultural and contextual landscape of what it's like being a teenager in 2020 is not that far off from the landscape of my own teenage years. So being able to really deeply relate to their experiences and and be kind of that that older sister that can really understand what they're going through that's what i really wanted when i was a teenager i had a, incredible people on my treatment team but you know i couldn't talk to them about the Snapchats that I was getting, or, you know, it's just different. Like everything is so different. So for me, it's funny. I have a lot of friends that are um, at least like 10 years older than I am. And a lot of times they'll make fun of some of the words that I use to describe things. I'll be like, oh, like that's so lit, you know? And, and they'll be like, Jules, what are you saying? Um, but I try, like, I'm still so much in that, that teenage culture a lot I think you know and I'm I just tell them I'm like it's part of my work I have to be able to relate (laughs) so I think that is that's one aspect of it that I have all of this lived experience and I've I've healed myself and I'm on the other side so that I can bring this wisdom with me but I can still be young enough to really relate and allow I set the container in my coaching relationship with my clients for them to really feel like they can open up and be vulnerable. And I do that by disclosing some of my own story and what I've been through. And, you know, everyone's different. So the pieces and the bites that people hear are different depending on their stories. But when I can lead with like, hey, I I actually do really understand where you're coming from. Of course, your lived experience is different, but I promise you that however you show up in this session, all of you is welcome and there's never going to be judgment. And I've probably done the same thing or something similar or something worse. Like you're not going to be able to shock me. And I think just leading with that, I can sometimes really see and hear the sigh of relief. And I think that's part of the turmoil in the teenage years too, is no one gets me. No one understands what I'm going through. And I, I know that I felt that it was so heavy. 
and so I, I speak to that heaviness, you know, and I, and I say, I'm not going to pretend ever pretend like I fully understand everything that you're going through, but why don't you try me and, and see, why don't you try and shock me, you know, and if you can big applause to you, but I, but I really don't think so. And so the first step in allowing them access that, that love to themselves internally is building that trust and rapport and helping them feel really safe in the container with me. And then once we build that, and for some people that happens in two sessions, for some people that happens in 10 sessions, you know, and it's, everyone's at their own pace. And what I really love about coaching is that we can meet people exactly where they are and work at their pace. So we start there. And then I like to, once we have this real solid bond and, and trust and rapport, I like to invite in for them the curiosity of, you know, what would it look like to be recovered? What would it look like to love yourself, to have confidence? And that is what I see time and time again is a, a total lack of confidence in my clients selves and their ability to show up in a, in a meaningful, beautiful, unique way in the world. And so we really work on that in building that confidence. And a lot of that comes from finding your passion, your purpose, and your mission in life. Like, what is it that, that lights you up inside and how can we tie that into a purpose driven life? And, and a greater mission and for everyone that's going to be so unique and it's a really beautiful discovery process to help clients, especially the young clients, because it can be really hard a lot of the times to find languaging around a lot of these things, you know, and I think that is the hardest challenge that I love so much about working with adolescents is, is how to make all of this wonderful healing vocabulary accessible and, and relatable to their lives and what they're going through. And so the way that I really like to do that and tie it into the, the mission and the passion and the purpose is looking at core values and, and really getting, again, curious about that. I love using curiosity because I think it's a really neutral and open word. You know, it's, it's not hope. I think sometimes hope can feel really a lot to people. And so just bringing curiosity, I think we can all do that in different ways. And so getting curious about, well, what are, you know, the three to five values or principles that you think are really important in this life and how can we align on those values and then lead them into a mission and then once we have the values locked in what I really love about that is that usually something like love or compassion, you know, one of these values is usually always in someone's core values. And then we bring it back to, well, wait a minute, if love is one of your core values, and you aren't loving yourself, 
then you're not living in alignment with your values. So in what ways can you start bringing love into yourself and, and really appreciate yourself? And, you know, I know that that's really hard in recovery. It's super hard. And that was really hard for myself. But one of the things that I started doing was just using affirmations. And I remember my first therapist, she told me, even if you don't believe it, it doesn't matter. Say them because the, the effects on your physiology and your neurology are really powerful. And if you repeat them enough, then in time, they just start to become part of that narrative. Jules, it's so, everything that you're saying is so powerful and, and beautiful. And also, and this is going to sound odd, but it's also simple. Hmm. It's the hardest thing to do to line up with our values, to have compassion and have love, but it's also very simple. Like the answer is not, it's not a big equation that it's going to take a long time to figure out what is the answer to this crazy puzzle, this crazy equation. It's simple. It goes back to starting with self. How do you feel about self? And again, are you living in alignment with what you value? Because if we can't move through that, I don't feel like other things are going to fall into place. This is like the core, right? This is the foundation. I don't know if you have any thoughts about that or. No, it's it's so true. It is so simple. And at the same time, the hardest thing to do. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Jules, I am so sorry. We, we are going to have to start winding down. It has been an absolute pleasure. Is there anything that I didn't ask you that you'd like to say before we end, before we close? Yeah, I think for me, something that I would really love to share is I know a lot of times in eating disorder recovery and these immense states of suffering, it feels like we have to do it alone. And that there's no one in the world that's going to be able to understand us and what we're going through. And it is true that the onus is on us as individuals to do that work and get ourselves out of the suffering, but we don't have to do it alone. And it's really, if you are suffering, if you are struggling, reach out have a conversation with someone about it find a supportive loved one in your life who can really listen and be there and we all have challenges that we go through in life and I think part of our work as humanity is to create the space for these difficult conversations to be had, create the space where if I can walk up to you and say, Hey, I'm having a hard day today, then that person can drop what they're doing and give me their attention and really pour that love into me and that care. And on the receiving side of that, if someone in your life comes to you that they're struggling, be there for them compassionately. Don't try and fix them because you're not going to be able to, 
but be there compassionately and and sit with them and and honor that they're sharing with you and being vulnerable and say, gosh, I so appreciate you sharing with me right now. This is really hard. And, you know, compassion is one of my core values for sure. So I think if we can just all live a a more compassionate life and tend to the garden that we can touch, it, it really changes a lot. Jules, again, from the bottom of my heart, thank you for coming on the show it has actually, it has absolutely been a pleasure. Thank you so much. Yeah, it's been an honor to be here today. And thank you for all the wonderful work that you're doing in your practice and in your podcast. And yeah, it's been great connecting. Wonderful, wonderful. All right, everyone. That does it for another episode of Recovery Bites. I look forward to speaking with each and every one of you next week. Take care and stay safe. We hope you enjoyed this week's episode of Recovery Bites. Be sure to visit recoverybitespodcast.com to join the conversation, access show notes, listen to past episodes, and more. You can also find us by searching for Recovery Bites on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and major podcast streaming players. For weekly episode releases, you can follow us at at Recovery Bites Pod on Instagram. If you're interested in becoming a guest on the show or to submit a guest request, please visit KarenLewisEDC.com forward slash podcast sign up to begin the process. I'd also like to send out a heartfelt thank you to my producer, Jen Galvin. It is unbelievable the magic she does behind the scenes. All right, everyone. See you next week for another Recovery Bite. Thanks for listening.